Welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And this is the last time I will verbally have to remind you that if you have not registered for the Michael Morewood webinar, which is coming up this Thursday night at 7 o'clock, you can do that. It's free, but you do need to register. And the rule maker oh. is here. Oh, I thought you assigned that announcement to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're the one who's going to tell everybody how to behave Thursday yes, night. Yes, I right? am. There's all kinds of rules. Like, don't be mean to one another. Don't um, don't use swear words. Don't use only Bill and Michael can use swear words on the evening of. <laughs> There's not all kinds of rules. It's just basically be nice in the chat. So, how will it work? Michael is going to speak for. 45 minutes or so. Roughly, yeah. And how will people get their questions to us? So I'll be monitoring those from the back of the room, and there's going to be a little, you'll get all these instructions, a little Q&A button, and you submit your questions there. Okay. Yeah. No hard questions. Only easy ones, like, what did you have for breakfast today? I might ask him about the, the Australian worldview. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, we have over 200 people registered for this, and I'm assuming it's going to be, it's the first time we've done anything like this. But based on the trial run that we had the other night, I think that we're, this is going to be very successful and fun. And we're gonna have an all day event in October with Jackie Lewis, an anti-racism webinar. I uh, met Jackie Lewis at a Richard Rohr conference a couple of years ago and was really attracted to her energy and her content. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. And you can find out more about what our minds are doing on our podcast. Yes, we have a podcast called In Between. If you have begun to listen to it, thank you. And if you haven't, you can find it on our website or via Apple Podcasts. It's on the same stream as the Ordinary Life uh, weekly lessons. So we've sometimes had guests. We, it's sometimes just us. So it's fun. It's, been, it's fun for us. How about that? <laughs> and I, I usually thank a number of people um, for helping make this uh, live stream possible. Um, Tim Leatherwood, of course, who's the technical guru here at St. Paul's, but the person who's running everything today is Olivia Watson. Yeah. She's a one-person show. So. She, she's so chill. She's just hanging out back there with her phone. <laughs> she also managed to make cupcakes this morning. Why was that? Uh, and she has, they, these cupcakes happen to say Bill on them. Yeah. Because. Because. Today is Bill's birthday. Yep. And I am going to sing happy birthday to you. Only it's going to be the Stevie Wonder version. Okay. Ready? Yeah. If you know it, sing along. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday, Bill. Thank you, Stevie. You're welcome. That was good. <laughs> My wife took me out to a wonderful dinner the other night, and I'm going to have a meal with my kids and their spouses and maybe grandchildren today, so that's a good day. That's a good day. No matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Holly and I are using teachings from the Buddha, from Buddhism, and teachings from the Jesus Database to guide us through this time of pandemic and racial reckoning, I guess we could call it. And we're going to go all the way through the Sermon on the Mount and we've just gotten started. We did two Sundays of introduction and last Sunday we did the one that says, blessed are the poor and this Sunday we are up to this one. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I think it's probably true that whether people go to church or not, most people have heard the Beatitudes. Well, we live in a um, we live in a Christian-dominated country, so in our country, we might assume that for sure. We live in a 
Bible dominated <laughs> church going <laughs> culture, whether it is Christian or not. That is, is a very good point. Is, is up for discussion. <laughs> yeah. I love to go through other translations of the scriptures. Uh, I think I have about 26 versions of the New Testament. That is so shocking that you have 26 versions. Oh, I'm a seven on the Enneagram. You I also have a handed lot of, me a lot like of stuff. five versions of the Gospel of Thomas when I asked for one. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is Eugene Peterson. I love Eugene Peterson's translations. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Now, what sense are we going to make of this teaching and what relevance or applicability does it have for us during this time of, as I said, pandemic and racial reckoning? I'm going to start today with the assumption that every one of us, including Holly and me, look at the world through a window that we were handed in the process of growing up. This is a window that I took in a hotel where we stayed, actually a bed and breakfast where we stayed in Italy in um, Assisi. Hmm. And um, I just, I like it. It's a pretty picture. We inherited a way to look at the world and the desperate need that we have right now in our culture is for people to grow up, to be mature in their faith, in their understanding of spirituality. And every one of us has inherited traits from our culture, from our families, from our social institutions that give us a worldview. And this worldview determines how we see everything. And what you have in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus attempting to communicate a different worldview to the people of his time and now uh, to the people of us. So I want to spend some time as we begin today trying to get all of us to be more aware of our own operative worldview. It's there and we might as well know what it really is because our, our worldview determines what we see and it determines what we don't see. It is largely unconscious and yet it drives us to do some things and not to do others. And if we don't become aware of our worldview, we'll never know why we don't see some things that are in plain sight, like, for example, the systemic racism that's being unveiled now. Most people have not seen that up until this time. Mm -hmm. And why do we see other things in such a, I would say, distorted way? So until we allow the teachings of Jesus or Buddha to get to and touch our operative worldview, there is going to be no substantial change for us or for our culture. And we will, as we referred to in this time last week, simply end up rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So um, I want to give you a couple of examples of shift in worldview, and then I want to describe like five. Uh, there are many, but I want to give you five dominant ones, just as a way to get you to have a different kind of window to look through. First, a shift in worldview, and it, it, this is one of the things, and I said this on the podcast that Holly and I did this week, if there's one thing that I would like to be remembered for or about my teaching that I've done in this church that I love so much for so long, if there's just one thing that I would like for people to remember, it is this, God is not out there. Holly so beautifully put it last week in, in our time together, God is embedded in all that is, and, and we are embedded in the sacred mystery. We just sometimes are not aware of this because we don't see it. Um, I think a profound misunderstanding of Christianity has taught people that God really wasn't in the world until Jesus. People have been taught that at the birth of the baby Jesus, God became incarnate in the world. And then after 33 years or so, Jesus floats off back up into heaven and the faithful now await 
his return. And in the meantime, God is out there. Now, you can tell this by listening to the way that most people pray. God is out there and must be invited, even begged, to come and be with us. This is what I refer to as cosmological dualism. True spirituality, including the teachings of Jesus, is totally integrative. There is one field of energy. It's not split. God comes through us, not to us. And I believe that this is really the unconscious or conscious worldview of most people who identify as Christian. God's out there. We're down here. So Jesus only meets people from without, never from within. This is their operative worldview. So I'll put this another way. Our worldview is formed by three images that are inside every one of us. They are not things that we choose to believe. They have already been given to us before we're able to think for ourselves. What we can do is become aware of them, wake up to them, and then work to transform them. These are the images that we have for ourselves, of God, and for the world. And I believe that a true hearing of the teaching of Jesus is going to transform these images. Our worldview normally seeks to answer three important questions. What should be? Why are things the way they are? And how do we make things right? How can we inhabit the empowering community that Jesus referred to as the kingdom of God? Or to quote something I've heard Richard Rohr say before, what should life be? Why isn't it that way? And how do we repair it? So the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' plan for a new world. It's his worldview. So I'll give you some um, worldviews across history. You can probably think of more than these. <clears throat> there was a time when the worldview was that there was an angry God out there and that we placated that angry God by making sacrifices of some kind to this God. You see this reflected in the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac and food sacrifices and other things that have existed across history. This, uh, image, this worldview made its way into some forms of monasticism when monks would punish themselves, whip themselves, uh, because that was their way of doing what they thought God would do to them. They just beat God to the punch. The uh, Buddhist worldview that we have looked at uh, says that suffering is a part of human, the human lot and we can find liberation by following the right path. The Buddhists got a lot right by this, the, the understanding the origin of suffering and the importance of having a contemplative practice. Uh, we in the West have been resistant to this kind of inner transformation. Karl Marx taught that the source of all our problems was private property because it caused wealth and greed. And this point of view does address some problems, but it creates a whole host. And then there is the one that we are most familiar with, the worldview of the United States, which is capitalism. Uh, each of us has inherited this. It says that the problems in the world are caused by those who are too lazy or too irresponsible to achieve material prosperity. And further, that this prosperity is within the reach of everyone if they will just try hard enough so that our big question is, how's the market doing? Uh, it doesn't matter about almost anything else if the bottom line is okay. This is our worldview. And uh, in spite of all its pluses, it does create a lack of compassion for those who are left behind. Not to be competitive and successful is a sin in the capitalistic worldview. So I was wondering what some worldviews of other countries might be like. And uh, I don't have a slide for this. And I, I wrote my friend Peter Sills and asked him what the worldview was in England. And you and I had, had this conversation while we were working on this talk. And you pretty well nailed it. Did I? What he, what he said. This is what Peter Sills wrote me back. 
There is a strong socialist tradition here. I think Brexit gives the better clue. For the English, underline, and not for Scots, Irish, and Welsh, this is one of those issues where the different nationalities that make up the UK make a difference. For the English, it would be about dreams of empire, assumptions of superiority, being right, knowing how things are done, plus independence of spirit. The world would be a much better place if they did things our way. And then lately in uh, this country, indeed around the world, we have seen postmodernism that seeks to give people the freedom to create their own facts. Uh, you remember early on in the Trump administration when there was some debate about the size of the inauguration, uh, Kellyanne Conway said when, pointed, when the photographs were pointed out, she simply said, well, we have an alternative set of facts. Mm -hmm. And that's what postmodernism allows people to do is to have their own facts. The thing is, that facts are facts, whether you like them or not. Now, most of us, until we do the work to, be, to come before sacred mystery with nothing in our hands, remember last week, blessed are the poor, those who have nothing, uh, we're not going to see or experience the real world. We'll see reality as we need it to be. We will see what we, uh, our fears will cause us to see what we see. Our anger will influence what we see. We see through our own agenda, which is opposite from the contemplative worldview, which sees what is, whether it is to our liking or not. Again, to quote Richard War, and this is one of his favorite lines, most of us do not see things as they are. We see things as we are. And right now, we're in a great struggle in this country uh, to see things differently, for things to be different. But if we don't have a different worldview, we're likely going to end up with the same version of what we have had. So as I see it, people on the right and left are using the same worldview to try to correct the problems. And I think we need another great awakening. We need a spiritual awakening because we're trapped in a worldview that is not only counterproductive, it's destructive. And I believe when we touch the true and deepest selves that we are, we will see the selves in others as well. And this is hard, folks. T.S. Eliot wrote, Human humankind cannot bear very much reality. To tamper with someone's worldview is just too much for a lot of folks. And I'm convinced that that's one of the reasons that a church like our own is reluctant to tamper with our liturgy. Such a minor matter seems to be so major, but not to do so leaves us stuck in a worldview that's gone. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I stress the importance of having a daily spiritual practice. Yeah. It's about the first time I've heard you say that. Not the first time, won't be the last. <laughs> Spend time observing your tricky ego. Mm. Get to know it. You're going to lose it when you die anyway. Might as well get it over with. Now, honestly, you can't do without your ego while you're on this planet. It's just the spacesuit that you use to move around in. It's not who you truly are. And all the other ways that we have identifying other selves is not who they are, truly are, are either. Have a contemplative practice that lets you know that God is not a God of vengeance and judgment, a God to be fearful of. Such a worldview keeps us in an infantile position, and what we need are adult, grown-up children running the show. We become like the God we worship. So Jesus came saying, I'm going to offer you an entirely different way to look at the world. I'm going to give you a new window to look through. And if you take it, you're going to have to give up the one you currently hold one you likely hold for dear life. Something you just said made me think, you know, God is a God to come into, just as the self is the self that we want to come into. Right. right? And 
Thanks for, you painted that picture for me as, as you were speaking. <laughs> I think it was Alan Watts who said that the earth people's people like an apple tree, apples, apples. Earth, the earth people's a lot of things. Yeah. The earth elephants, elephants. Yeah. <laughs> but so this beatitude, um, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you is, is a difficult one to accept. I think of it through the lens of the parent. And if you tell me you have to lose your children in order to understand God's love, you're like, mm -mm. <laughs> I don't want God's love. You know, because for me, my children are most dear to me. There is something kind of mystical about becoming a parent. This is not the only way to have a mystical experience, of course. But it is an act of kenosis, which literally means self-emptying. It's to know what it means to have a part of you always outside of yourself. Parenting, as I said, is not the only way to transcendence, but it is a way. So if I consider what is most dear to me and what it might mean to lose it, it is my children. Losing them would be losing part of myself. But the prophetic voice Khalil Gibran reminds us, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. They come through you, but not from you. And though they are with you, they belong not to you. We start to lose our children for the, the moment they are born. Gibran also said, if you love somebody, let them go. For if they return, they were always yours. And if they don't, they never were. Jesus' teaching says that comfort comes through mourning, and mourning arises from loss. How then can we make sense of this uh, more concrete in a more applicable way today? Do we need to lose our children or whatever is most dear to really understand spiritual fullness? I'd like to say that this verse is in part about sacrifice, which I don't mean the physical sacrifice of Abraham and his son, or of an animal sacrifice or throwing a virgin into a volcano but about being willing to give something up, acknowledging the pain of loss and ensuing confusion of loss, but being open to coming back to it in a new way. These days I'm understanding mourning in two ways. The first is through hopelessness and despair that arises from permanent loss. And the second is a kind of anxiety that arises from what Pauline Boss calls ambiguous loss. You know, later in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to hear Jesus giving all kinds of advice about uh, not calling attention to ourselves, not seeking higher places, not trying to prove that we're right. And I think those who are poor in that sense are more likely to be open to these spiritual teachings, particularly what you're going to hear Holly talk about next. So the questions that I would propose that we think about in exploring what our worldview is, what a true worldview is, is our questions like, in what ways do I think that I am rich? Uh, what is it that I feel I need to defend? What principles do I have to prove? What keeps me from being open? And you understand that what is at stake here is not, at least for those who are hearing, viewing this time, I'm not talking primarily about material goods, but what might be called our spiritual and intellectual goods. When we go into the dark cave to meet the mystery, we carry nothing with us. And that's really more scary than it sounds like. Mm -hmm. A lot of loss. Mm -hmm. I'm up. You're up. Okay. So when I think about hopelessness, I returned to the teachings of Buddhism. It starts with a premise um, similar to the second beatitude, that we cannot know liberation until we have accepted suffering. Scott Peck, and I got this wrong on the slide, but I changed it. You did. <laughs> I conflated two different people that I have read. Scott Peck starts his book, The Road Less Traveled, with life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Attunement to suffering, to deep grief, is actually what paves the way to profound joy. It's not the other way around. 
Sometimes, though, I think that joy takes time to grow and evolve. And between grief and joy, there is comfort. So I want to go back to parenting for a minute. I think of many mothers and fathers. I thought of the Sandy Hook mothers this week, those who lost their precious little ones in a school shooting some years ago. I think of black mothers who have lost children, both grown and not grown. During enslavement, children were sold away from their mothers and fathers and often were never reunited. Quite nationally known was Mamie Till's grief in 1955. And then more recently, we have Sabrina Fulton, who was Trayvon Martin's mother, Samaria Rice, who was Tamir Rice's mother, Sheenan McLean, who is Elijah McLean's mother, Wanda Cooper-Jones, who is Ahmaud Arbery's mother. This list is too long, and it would take the whole of this class and then some to go through. These mothers have known unspeakable pain. Jesus' mother knew unspeakable pain. Contrast these two pietas, one ancient by Michelangelo in stone, and one more modern by the artist John Henry. Both are real. God is there, too, inside of that pain and grief. I don't think we can expect mothers who have lost children to deal us hope or to make us feel better about loss. We often look to people who have lost for hope. In time, maybe they can teach us about what it means to feel at the end of your rope and survive it. And touching that grief can pave the way for imagining a more just world, one in which we don't lose people to senseless violence. This is the world Jesus envisioned, the one he died for. Hope arises from being able to confront pain and loss. Many of you probably saw the Time cover recently painted by Titus Kafar. He also painted the, um, Obama's presidential portrait when he left office. It's a beautiful portrait. But around the edge of the Time magazine are the names of the many black lives that have been lost to, um, to senseless shootings. He wrote this poem to accompany the work. I cannot sell you this painting. In her expression, I see the black mothers who are unseen and rendered helpless in this fury against their babies. As I listlessly wade through another cycle of violence against black people, I paint a black mother, eyes closed, furrowed brow, holding the contour of her loss. Is this what it means for us? Are black and loss analogous colors in America? If Malcolm could not fix it, if Martin could not fix it, if Michael, Sandra, Trayvon, Tamir, Breonna, and now George Floyd can be murdered and nothing changes, wouldn't it be foolish to remain hopeful? Must I accept that this is what it means to be black in America? Do not ask me to be hopeful. I have given up trying to describe the feeling of knowing that I cannot be safe in the country of my birth, how do I explain to my children that the very system set up to protect others could be a threat to their existence? How do I shield them from the psychological impact of knowing that for the rest of their lives, we will be seen as a threat and for that we may die? A MacArthur won't protect you. A Yale degree won't protect you. Your well-spoken plea will not change hundreds of years of institutionalized hate. You will never be as eloquent as Baldwin. You will never be as kind as King. So isn't it only reasonable to believe that there will be no change soon? And so those without hope burn. This black mother understands the fire. Black mothers understand despair. I can change nothing in this world, but in paint I can realize her. This brings me solace, not hope, but solace. She walks me through the flames of rage. My black mother rescues me yet again. I want to be sure that she is seen. I want to be certain her story is told. And so this time, America must hear her voice. This time, America must believe her. One black mother's loss will be memorialized. This time, I will not let her go. I cannot sell you this painting. That's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. 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 Can, 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 uh, we didn't plan for this. That's all right. <laughs> but um, you have three brown-skinned children. I do, yeah. Have you had the conversation oh, with yes. them? Oh, yes, yep. What do you say to them? Um, you know, all little boys that I have met in my life want a gun, a toy gun, a real gun. 
there's some little some older boys down the street from us who uh, both white who have a BB gun and they play with it in the front yard and my kids asked for one and I was like mm-mm and let me tell you why um, they were probably four five and six well I mean you know it's sort of this childhood rite of passage that kids somehow boys you know they start making pew 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 as soon as they can right i don't know what that's about but i resisted it for a long time but to explain to your little boy and there's you know there's one part of it is neither josh nor i want, we don't want guns in our house like that's just how we feel but it, when a little boy who sees that as a toy who sees that as a, a, a thing to play with um doesn't understand that logic you know why they can't have what other kids have. And you will continue to have conversations yes. with them. Yeah, they've, they've changed over the years and every time another uh, black male is killed, we, we have a conversation and it'll change as they get older. I, I, I think one of the most, one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever heard from you was after George George Floyd was murdered. I think it was Cole. My middle son, yeah. Who said, Mommy, maybe you should do the shopping and let Daddy stay home. I can't let Daddy go to the store anymore. That's a terrible fear it to live with. It is a fear that no child should have to live with. It, it's just a fear that no child should have to live with. End, end of story. Okay. Yeah. But to understand, I think, this grief, this kind of loss that this mother on the Time Magazine has, I think we have to allow ourselves also to become hopeless, to keen almost with grief. Not long ago, anthropologists Renato and Shelley Ronaldo came up with a, they, they came upon a new emotion while living amongst the Ilongot tribe in the Philippines. The emotion is liget. They couldn't put it into English words. It was like describing the color blue when you've never seen it. So it remained vague, and they kind of grasped it by watching rituals, by letting people speak about it. But it had something to do with a combination of fury, despair, and helplessness fueled by loss. Years later, when they returned to live among a different tribe in the Philippines, Renato's wife, Shelley, died from a bad fall, and he felt it. This emotion of overpowering grief that welled up inside of him and produced something between a wail and a scream. Liget. He says once he feel, felt this feeling in his body, once he felt this tremendous loss, he could begin to heal. There was no word in the English palette of emotions that touched the profundity of this grief. At best we can say, it's a swelling of emotion, an undefinable but undeniable urge. It is a wild feeling. When sometimes it can be out of control, this is not always true. It can be perfectly calculated. It seems to arise out of love. Can we love this world and love one another, want each other to feel comforted enough to heal? Liget. I love this image of a body being pulled apart while trying to keep hold of the heart and mind. Where'd you get this? I, you know what I did? I Googled the word liget. And, I just, I, and then I clicked on images to see what would come up. And I thought this was perfect. This is powerful. Yeah. The body is split, is being torn in two. And it's, you can see that they're it's both pulling it back together and trying not to let it go. But these forces are overwhelming. It took me a whole paragraph to describe that emotion, but any one of us who has known a certain kind of loss has felt it. it. You know this feeling that arises in your body. And it is what too many mothers of black men and boys feel. It is what we should all feel, I think, at such senseless loss. I wonder if we were able to experience it as if they were our own sons, if we could create a society in which those who mourn can be comforted, we might have a different attitude towards this kind of pain. Um, Francis Weller says we need ritual around this kind of despair so that we do not continue to deny and suppress it. The tribes that Ronaldo lived among in the Philippines had such rituals, rituals that involved fire. Thus, their bodies could begin to let go of liget. 
Often this fire was the ultimate symbol of destruction and then rebirth. And it's also mentioned in Kafar's poem. Through the expression of pain, they can learn to live again and maybe even begin to experience joy again. I've heard many refer to the current civil rights protests as the fire this time. This refers directly to a book James Baldwin wrote in 1963, The Fire Next Time. There was a fire then, changes occurred. We believed things got better. There's a fire now, changes need to occur so that things can continue to get better. The phoenix arises from ashes and we are recreated by loss. So I wanna remind all of us that the theme of all of these talks since over oh, the last two years, starting probably January two years ago, has been um, to look at all of our religious and spiritual understandings and practices in light of this thing that we call the new cosmology. It's not new, <laughs> but it's, it's new it's like to so many of us. Huh? It's like 14 billion years old. Yeah. <laughs> But you know, it, it, it's amazing to me that um, when, I, as I continue to study, mm-hmm. I see evidences of this going all the way back, uh, not only to Meister Eckhart, um, mm-hmm. whom we love to quote, I love him. but it, it, even further, the, the mystics and the saints, the early people in Hinduism and That's Buddhism sure. uh, uh, have, have had this. Um, they know that they have known that God is in all things and in all people. And if we lose the capacity to see this, to see that God is in all who are and all that is, we're going to lose the ability to see God in anything or anyone. That is, we make the decision about where to see God. That puts the ego in charge of what is true not what is, is in charge of what is true. God becomes captured in our private world. I thought um, after writing all of this and after Holly and I talked about this numerous times this week of going back through the manuscript and taking the word God out everywhere mm. because it's a, it's a word that when you say it, people almost automatically think out there instead of here. So I I prefer phrases like sacred mystery. I love Holly's concept of embeddedness. But the person who followed St. Francis, a friar known as Bonaventure, said this, God is within all things, but not enclosed. Outside all things, but not excluded. Above all things, but not aloof. Below all things, but not debased. He also described God as the one whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at this and embrace it, what you're going to walk away with is Iliadelio's understanding of the whole cosmos as a very safe place to be. And I think that's a lovely notion. And it, we don't have anything to be afraid of. We, can, we have space now to, to move around, which is really what salvation means, is to live without these fences and that keep people out. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think for the last 700 years, the church has lost this understanding of the sacred. Our seeing has been very partial, if we have seen at all. And those who are in power in the church, I'm thinking now the best examples can probably be drawn from Roman Catholicism, certainly up until the time of the Protestant Reformation. And then the Protestants just took it on in steroids and did the same thing, saying where you could and could not see God, who was in, who was out, who was righteous and who was not. So the church has this history of excluding those. It considers heretics and sinners. I mentioned Meister Eckhart a minute ago. Meister Eckhart was brought up on trial for being a heretic because people simply didn't understand his non-dual approach to to things. Mm -hmm. And the people who were critiquing him, they knew where God was and where God could show up and who could gain access to God and who couldn't. Um, 
that's done a great deal of damage to people. It's done a great deal of damage to the earth. One of the things I hear this thing from the Sermon on the Mount encouraging us to do is to weep and lament and mourn this kind of behavior and publicly come to terms with the way that we have been complicit in creating the mess that we're in today. It didn't just happen. This is a product of human design that we have cooked some things up. Now, as we go deeper into this material, uh, we will see one of the ways Jesus tried to take away what the mystics call the great chain of being was by telling people not to judge. Don't kick people out. Welcome everybody to the table. Be open. Be forgiving. Mourning is what allows us to bear our pain and the pain of others without getting caught up in the senseless and useless process of trying to look for perpetrators or victims, but be willing to recognize the tragic reality that both sides are caught in. And, and I think the absolute worst expression of the kind of dualism that I have in mind is the belief that God is on our side. I'm right, and God's God has arranged this for me. Mm -hmm. It's a dangerous thinking. Oh, it's we terrible. We learn that there's an equal and opposite to everything. But when, when, it's funny because I think we have such different definitions of, of safety, and it may be my counterphobic sickness coming into play, but um, I don't think this process is safe in the sense that um, when I think of safety, I sort of think of status quo, of, of sort of neat neatness um, to upend to peel back is deeply unsettling and deeply disruptive, right? But we will be held there. Right. Yeah. I think that's what I mean by yeah. that. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would acknowledge that change is destabilizing for everybody. Yeah, when, yeah. But life is change. Yes. Life is ongoing, constant yeah. change. And, and, and to quote again Scott Peck's book, I don't, I'm not gonna direct quote it, but once we can get that, then we're on the way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the safety is in knowing that that's the only constant maybe. You right? and I talked this week about the fact that, you know, in light of my birthday coming up. Oh no, today, it's today, it's not coming up. Oh, it's to <laughs> today is the birthday. Well, we were talking about it coming, uh -huh. right, today's the day. So just this week, a dear friend of mine died. Mm -hmm. uh, another one uh, has entered home hospice care. And I acknowledge that I have myself entered that phase of life I think one of my parents said this, but it, I'm sure others have said it. I've entered that stage of my life where um, I'm attending the funeral of my friends, yeah. you know, yeah. who people are dying, mm -hmm. except now we don't do funerals. Yeah, that's true. We mourn in a sort of private, alone way. Well, yeah. Well, well, may you be blessed with 20 more years. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Um, you know, this does get us right into this idea of ambiguous loss. There's a wonderful podcast on, on being with Krista Tippett in which she interviews Pauline Boss, who says, ambiguous loss is one that occurs without closure or clear understanding. This kind of loss leaves one searching for answers and thus complicates and delays the process of grieving, resulting in unresolved grief. So many of us can understand this feeling as we have lost access to one another, to spontaneity, to life as we knew it, to being here together. I really needed a chorus in singing happy birthday to Bill today. <laughs> um, but there's so much more at stake right now. There's a collective identity shift going on as well. So we've lost something, something is shifting, it is unsettling, where will we arrive? I think one of the things that many white Americans are grappling with is the fear of losing a piece of identity as we come to some understanding of what white privilege is and white body supremacy that has existed in different ways. It's no longer white hoods and burning crosses. That's sort of the easy idea of what white privilege or supremacy might be. But it, we've, we're learning that it's pervasive in our systems, our places of worship, schools and government. You talked about worldview earlier. So often the worldview, I think my dad said this once, uh, the victor writes the story. And so 
anyone's worldview um, could be different based on their experience, either culturally, racially, religiously, et cetera. But in a dominant, in a society that's run by a dominant group, that worldview becomes pervasive. And our worldview is shifting right now. Again, unsettling. As we wake up to this, there's an anxiety, I think, about whether we as individuals have, have contributed to this. Anxiety about whether we will do or say the wrong things as we try to write it. Anxiety that if we imagine a new kind of inclusive society, we might lose something. Often, when one holds a position of power or privilege that is unquestioned, as white folks have for so long in this country, a supremacy that Christianity has upheld as well, it is easy to lean into fear and anger. We want to cling to what we know and often get fiercely protective of our identity or the ego structure. Uh, whiteness is so ubiquitous in this country that it, it, it's really even hard to define. We don't realize how we've clung to it until confronted with losing this kind of nebulous thing. You've heard this saying, nature abhors a vacuum. How that applies here is that if we empty ourselves of rather false and kind of constructed identities, something else will fill its space. Even maybe something larger, something better than we have yet to imagine. Yes, we lose something, but we stand to gain something too. And we can't be filled if we can't empty. If you don't already have the idea that a more just, equitable society is an improvement on what we have, one in which black mothers don't feel losing their sons, or children don't have to go to sleep hungry, or parents don't have to work three jobs to make ends meet, then there's no way I can convince you that losing is a good idea. But just in case you do believe, and I bet most of you do, that a just society is an improvement, the anxiety of loss can be filled by the possibility of greater belonging. In our society, whiteness has been so normalized that it needs no mentioning in comparison to another race. Many of us have had the privilege not to think about race because we've been taught in overt and covert ways that it's the standard of how things should be. If we are really to embrace a pluralistic, dynamic, and inclusive society, however, we can't lean on one understanding of what is most correct. We must allow ourselves to kind of let go of a fixed standard. We can grieve the loss of comfort, and I think that's important. A comfort of understanding, but letting go of that, kind of with palms out and open, makes space for healing. We need these rituals of healing around this country's racial trauma, and I think that is true for all of us. One example of white normalization that I'm talking about is that very often in literature, especially children's literature, the characters, races, or cultures are not mentioned unless they are not white. A girl might be described as blue-eyed, freckled-faced, curly-haired, but her skin is rarely mentioned. Even in my favorite book series, in Harry Potter, which um, is world-renowned and translated into something like 73 language. Wow. Yeah. There's only three characters in the stories whose races are mentioned, and they are Asian and black. The rest, we are to presume, are European and white, though their skin color, again, is never mentioned. In a very subtle way, and I don't think that this is like a deliberate act, it's, but what it does is it, is it normalizes whiteness and it otherizes those who are not white by setting apart this child, black, and doesn't name the other. The second example that I think is pretty pervasive and um, fairly common thinking in our society is the idea of exceptionalism. I used to teach in a majority Hispanic school, like 99% Hispanic. Most of my students were first generation American or immigrants themselves. The goal of the school was to get kids into college and for a long time in the early years, the students who made it were viewed as exceptions. Ever so subtly, we taught them to speak unaccented English, to behave according to standards of dominant society, and to shoulder the difficulty of becoming American by following a set of rules that we created. Often, donors who supported us and reporters who wrote about us perceived our students as anomalies in their community. They were the ones who achieved a certain amount of success because they played by the rules. On the surface, what I'm describing doesn't sound like a problem. It is not a problem to go to college. It's not a problem to learn to speak English. 
But what we did was reinforce that the kids were exceptional or special. They were, of course, but no more or no less than any other kid. I came to see my own faulty thinking around this over time. It's not that the ones who made it or who learned to speak English were exceptions or somehow more gifted. The problem is not with the other students who didn't make it, who got kicked out, or who had to drop out to work. The problem is that the many, they had many, many, many barriers that kept them from having access to seeing success in the first place. So the problem, I wanna reiterate this, the problem is not with the kids. The problem is with the barriers that kept them from fully participating. The God that Jesus talked about was a destroyer of barriers, accessible to all. If we keep this narrow vision of God, our narrow, or a narrow vision of Jesus, if we keep this narrow definition of what success looks like, then we continue down this path of competition, exceptionalism, and exclusion. Can I have the clicker? It gets really crowded up here in that part of the triangle, right? I drew this last week. So this part of the triangle has room for a few, that tippy top. There is not enough room for everyone there. That encourages scarcity thinking because as we clamor over each other where there's room for just a few in that top percent, then we can't open up the borders and create barrierless societies. This is what Jesus envisioned. Open it up. Let God flow in like a river. Let Jesus's words be for everyone, an embodiment of the way. Let resources and access flow freely through all communities, and then we can talk about true democracy, equity, and belonging. For this to happen, I think we have to be able to lose these ambiguous things like status, wealth hoarding, this myth of meritocracy that if you work hard enough, you can make it, and scarcity thinking, that there's not enough for everyone. There is enough for everyone. Do you know that statistic off the top of your head that we produce a certain percentage of the world's um, uh, imports, but we, but we consume? 80%. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's so insane, right? So, so there is enough for everyone. If we took 10% of the yeah. defense budget of this country, we could... Um, provide health care for everybody, and we could eliminate poverty. Yeah. If, if, 10%. If, if those at the top of the triangle gave like 10% of their wealth, A, they would still be billionaires, and B, we could like end poverty in many developing countries. And, and there is massive resistance to that idea. I think it would be easier to take money from the defense budget. Seriously. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> uh, but there's even defensiveness uh, uh, yeah. about that. Well, we, that's, uh, that, that's the fear thinking, right? That if we let go of this, mm -hmm. we will lose something. We will lose safety. Blessed are those who are poor. Right. Who and, give it up. Yeah. And, and, and oh, I, I, I am as resistant to change as anybody. Mm -hmm. uh, but the fact is that, and, and we're going to do two models of growth next Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> I want to re-talk, I want to talk through the, the cosmic egg again, yeah. and you want to do... Well, kind of two and a half, the biopsychosocial model, but I've expanded it a little bit. So every, every time you go from one of these developmental stages to the next, mm -hmm. you, as Ken Wilber says, you transcend, you include what's behind, but you transcend it. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you turn your back on it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. you, you, that's the way you're open to the new. And, and so the, there is this pattern of growth of things um, having order, mm -hmm. and then as you've just showed, disorder mm -hmm. before there can be a new order. Reorder. Yeah. Right. And let's, let's be clear about what it means to transcend and turn your back on. Turn your back on does not mean deny. It means dealing with and then not letting that thing inform you. 
you know, you're, you can't, your, your three-year-old behavior, it's not helpful for it to inform your 43-year-old behavior or your 83-year-old behavior. So in, in, in <laughs> I don't know anybody that age. I don't either, that's old. Uh, in, in his book, Living the Examined Life, which um, Jim Hollis is doing kind of a reprise of all the valuable teachings of Carl Jung, one of the things that he starts with is many people in beginning psycho-spiritual work begin to realize that they're walking around the, in the, on the earth in shoes that are way too small. Mm, mm, mm. We're much bigger than we think we are. We are bigger than we think we, we are. We have, I mean, when I think about the idea of sort of the universe pouring through us and becoming conscious of that, it's like we're terrified of our own imaginations to be able to sort of expand that, right? It's, it, I think that's the kind of way that change can be scary. Well, I don't know what's out there. I don't know how to create it. But, but if anything is remarkable about, remarkable about human beings, it's the ability to imagine and then to create something out of that imagination. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's beautiful to me. You know, the, the two people that come to mind when we talk like this are uh, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they both have dealt with huge losses huge. and great difficulties and all, all, that, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I wonder where is our Nelson Mandela, by the way, yeah. in this country. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, my, my point is that, that both of those people say, and you can re- find out about this in their great book, the, the Book of Joy, is that the solution to our difficulty is education, which is what we're trying to do right here. Right. Is to say that there are insights and tools that we can use to help provide the necessary stability to endure the inevitable chaos. And education in my, so the root word of educate, educere, means to lead out. I just love that lead out into one's own light, into one's own sense of being. And in some funny way, I think this second lesson of the Beatitudes is not so much about loss as it is about embracing abundance. But we must lose something small to embrace something abundant and large. Uh, It doesn't say just blessed are they who mourn. Mm -hmm. It's when there's less of you. There's more. There's more exactly. of yeah. the real. And, and for sure, some of us have tragic losses and go through that loss in that very real, concrete way. But these other ambiguous losses of fear of losing something, and it's usually ego-oriented, mm-hmm. can make so much space for this river to fill up. And, you know, as our new understandings replace old ones, it's, it produces anxiety. That's only natural. It's hard to name what has been lost and therefore hard to grieve it. Buddhism reminds us that things arise and things fall away. It's the continuous cycle of existence. The Spanish language is so brilliant in this way. It uses two forms of to be. One is ser, it's of course rooted in Latin, but one is ser and one is estar. Ser is permanent and the other estar is temporary. The language itself has this built-in temporality that allows us to speak of impermanence. What might arise if we mourn the thing that separates us, that keeps us from repenting and building bridges of understanding and empathy that eventually create new ways of being? So blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Thank you. Mm. Well, I'm going to see you. Holly and I, you're going to be on the screen Thursday night too, right? Uh, And delivering the questions, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'll see you. We will see you Thursday night, the Michael Morewood mm-hmm. thing. Um, I, I again want to thank Holly for all she brings to this. This is good stuff. Mm-hmm. I have so much fun. I doing, had a good teacher. Huh? Well, <laughs> I get the prayer poems of a man um, who is actually a retired Methodist minister. His name is Steve Gnars Holmes. And um, he, he writes such beautiful stuff. And the, one of the ones that I got this week, it's just a, such an appropriate, spot-on prayer poem about this very beatitude that we uh, have been talking about, struggling with, playing with, 
today. I want to read it to you. Hmm. A weaver moves into your house. She makes beautiful things out of everything you own, weaving every living thing together. She unravels rugs and furniture. The loss is great, but they're so beautiful. They bring joy to everyone. So you let her. She unravels your house. You hesitate, but choose to let her. What she weaves is amazing and clothes the world in beauty. You are truly happy. She takes your hand and begins gently, carefully unraveling. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step and we will see you Thursday night.